Hi, everyone. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn. Welcome to this bonus crossover episode of Mother Country Radicals. It's been a few months since the series was released, and I'm so grateful to all of you for listening and reaching out to tell me what you think. It's been a wild ride. This summer, we were honored to premiere Mother Country Radicals at the Tribeca Festival, where we won the award for Best Audio Storytelling. Coincidentally, Mother Country Radicals wasn't the only show at Tribeca that took listeners back to the era of the American counterculture. Another show also featured a host interrogating her parents' past choices and thinking about their legacy. That other show is called I Was Never There. In this eight-episode series, listeners are taken on a trip through the countercultural movement swirling through West Virginia in the 1970s and 80s. Jamie Zellermeyer and her mom, Karen, investigate the mysterious disappearance of their friend, Marsha Mud Ferber, and explore her evolution from suburban housewife to back-to-the-land hippie and political radical to drug-dealing bar owner. When we released our respective series, Jamie and I kept hearing people wanted to know more about our connection to our moms, what it was like to work with them, how it felt to re-examine their choices, and how our relationships evolved through the ups and downs of the creative process. And so today, that's what we're here to do. We're interviewing the moms and introducing you to a fascinating new podcast series. So stay tuned for my conversation with Jamie and Karen Zellermeyer and my mom, Bernadine Dorn. Well, it's great to be part of this conversation. So I guess to start out with Jamie and Karen, if listeners haven't yet heard I Was Never There, how would you describe the show? I Was Never There is a mother-daughter podcast, and um, it's looking back at the disappearance of a very close friend of my parents in 1988. Uh, she disappeared in Morgantown, West Virginia. And like my parents, she was a radical back-to-the-land hippie in the 1970s. And the podcast was really a way to look at that time and place, which was something that I had always been really interested in as a storyteller and also just processing my own childhood and I guess my own relationship with my parents. Adding in the true crime hook is just another great part of the story and part of my childhood. So it's both true crime and memoir. And we have this mother-daughter relationship dynamic that um, plays throughout. In a funny way, I mean, we've talked about how thematically similar the two shows are in certain ways. Uh, Mother Country Radicals is really a political history and a family history. It's got a kind of a crime story like yours does, where the crazy part of the backstory is that I was born underground. My mom, who's here with us, was um, on the run from the FBI. She was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list as part of the Weather Underground. And the story is really about my childhood growing up underground, but also about the longer history of the radical undergrounds of the 70s and 80s, the relationship between the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panther Party, and kind of what those stories can tell us about today. I think what I'm kind of interested in is sort of the similarities and the differences in these different types of movements and different choices that you guys made. I mean, because I was thinking you all wanted the same thing or many of the same things, but the approaches were very different. And I'm personally interested to hear more about that from both of your perspectives, looking back at that time period. 
you know, Mother Country Radicals comes from the Black Panther Party. And if you look back at the 10-point program in the original Black Panther Party, they called white people Mother Country Radicals. And so that's where it comes from, the title. And I think we felt, I felt both, you know, proud and embarrassed by that <laughs> designation because of the history of of racism and the history of warmongering in the world that characterizes the United States government and policy. And so, you know, it was kind of wonderful to be acknowledged as part of the movement and cringeworthy to have the history of uh, white America, which of course always had its rebels and its uh, upheavals and its radicals. But nonetheless, overall, looking at it overall, was complicit with, you know, with these other great crimes. So I find the title funny and, and appropriate and, and curious. And it made me went back and look at the Panther Black Panther Party 10-point program, which really is a program for today. It's astonishing how they managed to address everything from homelessness and, and health care to global issues of war and peace. So that stands up, <laughs> whether we do or not. Mm -hmm. What about you, Karen? How do you see the, the differences in approach there? It's, 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 it's interesting. I was, I think, back when we made the decision to go off the grid, capitalism was the framework that we used and wanting to reject and dismantle those systems. And I know, I have realized that, in fact, my race politics were incredibly, and I, I want to be careful, I don't want to be disparaging about the word I'm about to use, were very liberal, right? That white privilege was not something when I was in my young 20s and made the decision to go back to the land, was not something that I was cognizant of or aware of. So it was a very liberal approach. We wanted racial justice. We wanted racial equity. We went on all the demonstrations. But that understanding of, well, of, of privilege, of the privilege we carried, I did not have for a number of years. I mean, I have huge props, Bernadine. I learned a lot from all of you in terms of that analysis and that critique. But back then, we didn't have it. I just have to say that I learned a lot from you. And one of the good things that happened to us once we disappeared and did go underground after the townhouse explosion and three of our comrades were killed there, it was more sudden than we had thought. We thought a lot about going underground and building an underground, but not the sudden way in which we just disappeared. But our friends who had were in communes up and down the West Coast were a major source of refuge for us. And they were shocked when we showed up, but they embraced us and whoever was making dinner that night or milking the cow or out in the garden or building a new house was part of the secret right away. Yeah. <laughs> but they were a part of who we became and a part of also safety. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say one of the things that interested me that I learned both making Mother Country Radicals and then I feel like I relearned listening to I Was Never There is this sense of like the interlocking movements of the time and how much people learned from each other, how much people drew from each other, how, you know, you could look at 
my parents and the Weather Underground who were involved in this kind of anti-racism and anti-war activism, but then they were running up against the Back to the Earth movement. They were running up against the abortion underground. And those people all had a kind of sense of solidarity, a sense that they were all in some large project together. So I wonder for you guys, like just to name three off the top of my head, the sort of back to the land movement, the music scene, the drug scene, the things that are happening in your show, the way those things all seem to kind of, I don't know, make their own little demi monde or their own, their own kind of small world of people who are kind of fellow travelers. They did, both to our detriment and downfall, ultimately, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is, uh, Jamie, I think you're right. We did all, we did want really the same we wanted to change the world, right? We wanted to dismantle the systems that were existence. We and we made very different decisions. I mean, I remember a, a, a very dear friend of mine who joined the underground, the Weather Underground, and I thought he was out of his fucking mind at the time. Like, right? You really think people are ready to pick up arms if you're the vanguard? I was just come on, Michael, come to your senses here. On the other hand, our lack of a Within the the back to the land movement, there was no unifying ideology other than, hey, you want to come live in the country? Great, welcome. But beyond that, there were some of us who were really driven by politics, but there were others who just wanted to party and have a good time. And I think ultimately that was our downfall or the shortcoming of our of our movement. But you know, the other thing I was thinking about are the terms we use. Because and, and I was never there. We used the term hippie a lot. But back then, I never considered myself a hippie. I mean, and in some ways, as someone who approached this through a political lens and ideology, somehow being a hippie was denigrating what we were trying to do. But I've embraced it now as a term because back then everybody thought we were hippies, but we never called ourselves hippies. You look around the world today, and I mean, I think in both shows, you can feel the kind of contemporary resonances and 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 how there is a, a generation today kind of looking for an alternative, trying to think of a better way to live in the world. And, and I guess I wonder, when you guys think back, what was it about that moment that made so many young people decide that the system was so deeply wrong and that they had to do something else? And do you see those same factors, whatever they may be, alive today. You know, I always feel like I want to defend today's young people. I think they're smarter than us and have a great critical lens and are brave and are creating a meaningful uprising, series of uh, waves of uprisings now. And, you know, I don't feel like, <laughs> certainly I don't feel like we were the high point, but I do feel that we're part of a long tradition and stream even of of U.S. life, American life. I, I guess I want to upgrade your description of being a hippie. I mean, certainly coming from Chicago, I was not into much of the hippie. But once we moved to the West Coast, it was so alive and well. And, and even people who didn't identify as part of a rural commune and living off the grid and kind of stepping away from a consumer madness and figuring out how people had lived before them. So there was an incredible midwifery tradition going on in the country up where we were. And 
that affected me and how ultimately I had my children. There was, you know, healthcare, there was eating well. I remember somebody had just written a book about, you know, where your food comes from and thinking about how you eat. And these things were, I just didn't consider them not political. I think they were very political and they were a rejection of, you know, a consumer addicted madness that characterizes U.S. life in addition to, you know, to war and racism. And so I felt that there was moments and many of us for whom all of these things came together, whether it was not exactly ideology and who you were reading, but it was also, uh, they, they tied themselves together and there were movements about them. And so the movements kept springing off of this. I remember several people left the Weather Underground after a year and a half or two because the gay movement had just broken out in New York and they wanted to be part of it. And they, we agreed that they should go be part of it. And so those, I, I see these things as very much sparks for other forms of radical thinking and living. And mom, I would add that my mom came out when I was, I don't know, five or six. I mean, I think it was kind of fluid, but it was not easy for you to come out in West Virginia in the 1970s, even being part of this countercultural environment. And I know we talk about that in our podcast too, that even though it was, you know, very progressive, there were still gender roles to be filled. But I do feel like the gay movement, that, that was something that you hit up against, Mom, during that time. Well, yeah, there was a huge backlash within our community when I started sleeping with women, absolutely. Uh, and I agree that, that I agree about a number of things. The, the sparks of radicalness, whether it was the midwifery or the organic gardening or the other kinds of things that kind of came out of our movement have, have had a profound effect on the culture in the United States. But um, there were those other elements. I don't want to gloss over them. There were the other elements that I think probably infused all of our worlds back then of, of drugs. And again, I don't think marijuana is a drug, so I'm talking about other stuff, right? But it did seep in, and many people had a harder time teasing apart what was healthy for us and what was not. And there was a lot of damage that was done along the way. And I think that that impacted parenting as well. Jamie and I have talked a lot about this, right? How in some ways for us in the back to the land movement, the having children was a primary piece of it, right? Because we were going to raise our children in this pristine environment and feed them great food and but on the other hand, we were going to do that and just do everything else that we really wanted to do. We weren't going to really let it change our lives. And I, that was hard on them, I think. One of the comments that we get a lot in the podcast or something that people latch on to is this idea of boundaries that where I press my mom and I say, like, I just wanted a curfew, but I really did just want a curfew. And, you know, I and I couldn't do it. And she couldn't do it. She would just say, well, just come home when your friends come home. And no cell phones, by the way. So how she even knew where I was. But we did feel sometimes like we were free floating and that there were not, not a lot of boundaries and that there were no boxes to be in. And sometimes that was great. And we were around a lot of, I'm sure you were too, like around a lot of really interesting adults 
and had a lot of interesting experiences. Like my sister and I, we would go hang out at the bar. And when our lives progressed from the 70s and 80s away from the back to the land, it did, I think, become more political, less about the back to the land, still communal. But I think my mom was kind of having more of a political awakening. But I don't know, we were just kind of my mom would go work at the bar and whoever was home, if people were in the house, they just, that was just what it was. There was no, no real structure to it. And it, I think it did cause a lot of anxiety as my sister and I got older and we both handle it in different ways, I suppose. But I still feel in awe of the time. Like I obviously still want to tell the stories and I, there's so much I love about it. And I think it was difficult for the children sometimes. Yeah. It's funny. The difficulty for us, I think, was very different. I mean, there were difficulties, but we, you know, growing up underground, growing up on the run, you're you're not, it's not like no curfew and go off and do your thing. And, you know, we don't know where you are. I don't think our childhoods were similar in that way. I think, you know, for us, it was much more, I mean, there was jeopardy, there was danger in growing up the way my brothers and I did, but it was more, we were a very tight-knit nuclear family who was, you know, we were around each other all the time. And when whether we were on road trips or hiding out at a commune or a safe house or whatever it was, we were kind of in that little unit. And so the danger came from outside. And I never felt like I wanted more limits or I wanted boundaries. I more felt like, you know, when my mom was arrested and when she went to jail, like the traumatic moments for us were actually having, you know, having our parents, in my case, arrested or, or sent to prison. In my brother's, my adopted brother's case, his parents went to prison for decades. So the the, the trauma was different and, and the kind of uh, the feeling of being a kid in the underground, I think, was probably quite different from being in that like more unstructured back to the land world. Zaid, how, how old were you when you came above ground? I was about five when we came above ground and then about seven when my mom went to jail. And then, you know, event, I mean, she got out, a, what, a year and a half later. So by the time I was 10, we were kind of more or less transitioning back into whatever regular life. But we had, you know, by that point, we had adopted my brother Chesa and his parents were in prison. The other people I talked to in the show, like Kakuya Shakur, whose mom Asada was was and is underground in Cuba. So a lot of the children of the underground, you know, their earlier memories are kind of, we have memories of being on the run, but then the the more, the stronger, more like vivid memories are separation, parents being sent away, visiting parents in prison, things like that. So the weather underground came apart and ended really right when I was pregnant with Zaid. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't part of that you know, more, I don't know what, intensely serious clandestine world. And also we left the West Coast and moved to the East Coast mm -hmm. during that period of time. So when I did face going to jail, it was for uh, refusing to talk with the federal grand jury. And that was weird <laughs> because many people had refused to cooperate with the FBI in the years that I was underground. Uh, and of course, I wasn't going to cooperate. Now, even though we had three kids at the moment, we'd mm -hmm. just gotten Chesa. So Zayn and I both remember intensely him visiting me weekly when I was uh, at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, I think the building that is not going to survive the next <laughs> year. Thank yeah. goodness. I wonder for you guys, I mean, I'm sure we all have, like, in terms of the process of making these shows, like, what were the hardest things 
Jamie to like to ask your mom about and Karen, what were the hardest things to be asked about? Uh, I mean, my mom and I are pretty close. Uh, I think part of the challenge of just the amount of time that it takes to make a podcast. In our case, we're co-hosts also, so it's slightly different process from your podcast, which is that we really do a lot together, like the writing, the creating, a lot of the creative conversations. And it's a lot of processing over an extended period of time. And sometimes I would say to the team, like, could we move this along a little faster? Because <laughs> it's just, it's not about necessarily the specifics. It's just about being in that headspace for a long time, you know, really thinking about your past, thinking about your childhood, thinking about how you want to push your mom, the push and pull. You know, I think as my mom says, I would often look at her and just say like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, just all of it, you know, it's just, and some of that's about the early 70s, some of that's about the 80s, some of that's about the 90s, which we don't even go into in the podcast at all, because some of those parenting decisions, you know, some of that was when I was in high school. I always heard that as not, uh, what the fuck were you thinking, but it doesn't seem like you were thinking about me. Right. Of course. I'm curious because I know Jamie has harbored in her teenage years and even early adult years some real anger about some of my choices and the way she was raised. Uh, I, have you had any of that anger, Zaid? <laughs> um, I don't know about anger. I mean, I, it's funny because I think in a weird way, and I, I talk about this on the show, but like the other kids I was around, in particular my adopted brother, Chesa, you know, were the things they were dealing with were so much more intense that uh, my memories are not so much about anger. I mean, I was certainly upset when my mom was in jail, but I was very eager for her to get out. And then when she got out, I was happy that she was out. And I think I didn't feel the sense that Chesa felt of like, my parents have abandoned me. They're gone. They're they're not available to parent me. Even when my mom was in jail, we visited her almost every day. And, and you know, it felt close. It felt difficult and painful, but it felt close. And that it was going to end. And that it was going to end. I mean, we didn't know when. I wasn't sure it was going to end. And a number of the people who were in jail with me, particularly the African-American women who were associated with the Black Liberation Army, you know, weren't, uh, thought they might, might, and several did get indicted uh, after our long period of not talking. So I, I think you know, it was always hovering there that it could be final and horrible, but it wasn't. But it wasn't, and you know, that's I think still, uh, you know, a question of privilege, white skin privilege, mm -hmm. and the differences. Um, but it was also timing and what happened. You know, how the authorities went after the Brinks robberies uh, and and got people to cooperate eventually. So mm -hmm. I was lucky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am curious in terms of that anger that, I mean, you guys talk about on the show and you mentioned that for you guys, your co-hosts and kind of creating the show together. And, you know, for me, it was more about just thinking like, what were the questions I wanted to ask? And then going to my parents over and over again and asking those questions and then re-asking them. But for you guys, I mean, how do you, you know, if the interpersonal stuff, the familial stuff that is already complicated, how do you add on to that a creative partnership and try to work through it as you're, as you're, as you're making a show? 
Well, she makes me crazy with the technology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, we grew into, I think we grew into it. I think it started out that I was the storyteller and that I was, that's what I do for a living. And, but I always felt like it was her story to tell in a way, because at first it was like, I'll just be the host and we'll do it. We'll interview her and she'll come in and. But it just felt very organic to have both of our voices because the perspectives are so different and because there is that push and pull between us of like, what were you doing while I was doing it? You know, I'll ask my mom, do you have any regrets about that time? How do we look back at the parenting of the 70s and the choices and was it good for the kids or not? And why did people have kids in the first place if you were doing all these other things? And For us, it just felt right that it was the two of us speaking in conversation together. For me, it was an incredible opportunity, an incredible blessing, privilege. One of the joys of this podcast process was Jamie and I having an opportunity to talk about all those things she just described. So it's not like Jamie was this angry teenager who was constantly you know, ranting and angry at me. It wasn't, that's not what it was at all. But, but in the course of doing the podcast, it became a little bit like a little bit of therapy. And I think we were both really willing to expose ourselves, to be vulnerable, to be able to put out what it was that for me, do I have any regrets? I don't have regrets. I, like you, Bernadine, I would say I was, I'm embarrassed about some of the things. (laughs) Exactly. And and I think my brother at one point when he was listening to it early on actually said, did you really have to expose yourself like that? Mm -hmm. Couldn't, you didn't have to say all those things. You didn't have to tell that story. You didn't have to talk about some of the stupid things you did. (laughs) But that it felt really important for me to be completely vulnerable and completely honest, and in some cases, honest with myself for the first time. It is interesting. I would never have wanted to do this five years ago or 10 years ago. I mean, I was pretty like militantly like not, I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't interested. It's just more that I grew up in that world and in that life. And I felt like my adult life was about doing other things and thinking about other things and telling other stories. And so there's something about, I don't know what, about early middle age, about having kids of my own, about the moment we're in politically that made it feel especially urgent now. I will say that the main thing that really, I guess, surprised me in terms of, well, while I was making the show, you know, I was interviewing all these people, all these radicals, my parents, but also friends of theirs, comrades in the Weather Underground, comrades in the Black Liberation Army. And, and you know, this was two years ago. And almost every person I interviewed, I would ask them, you know, what radicalized them initially? And they would tell a story. And it was almost always a story of a black person being killed by police. You know, my mom's living through being friends with Fred Hampton and then watching him murdered by the Chicago police. Or I was interviewing this Black Panther, Jamal Joseph, uh, and he was telling me the story of this kid, Clifford Glover, a 10-year-old kid shot by the police in Queens in 1974. That was what radicalized him. And, you know, while I was doing these interviews, George Floyd was killed and we had these sudden racial reckoning uprisings on the street. And that part felt just insanely 
of the moment that that we're still dealing with those same problems that not only i mean of course and it, it, it's so tragic that that black people are still being murdered by law enforcement but also that you're seeing that same sense of outrage among young people black and white to to you know to that kind of violence and seeing people you know that it really it does sort of rip the veil off what america is supposed to be and and it 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 does feel like that part is happening again what do you think I do, and I think I think you could say the same. I'm wanting to say the same about young people wanting authenticity of of their life, mm-hmm. refusing to participate in in the corruption of almost every institution, angry at schools and schooling and and uh, what they're being taught and what they're not being taught. So I think I think there's there the things that we objected to in our own ways back then are still obviously with us, not to mention, you know, stolen elections and, and, uh, and corrupt presidents. So, and a climate catastrophe. Uh, and a climate catastrophe and permanent war. I guess I think underlying these things are how do you want to live your life as your person coming into consciousness or even an old person like me in my 80s. You know, how do you want to uh, you know, what do you want to stand for still is a, a living question to me. And I think it is to young people who look around them and are like, holy caboli, is this it? Is this, it? and how am I responsible or how am I angry or how am I creative about how we can do this differently? And and then for me, watching our grandchildren come into this and 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 be conscious and want to make a mark, their mark, in, in their unique ways is just a thrill that I managed to live into my 80s. That makes me so happy. <laughs> I can't, all I can think is, I think two things. Well, one, we marijuana seems to be one, one area of progress. <laughs> I'm thinking, what's changed? Well, marijuana is legal in a lot of places, which obviously for, for our story is a pretty big deal. But what do you guys think about us? I'm not sure I consider myself, I, I consider myself aware. I have ideals. I have morals. I'm not going and doing civil disobedience like my mom did, which is really what in the 80s, she kind of went from back to the land to civil disobedience to being a little bit more active politically. But how do you see us? Well, I see you as political in telling her story and your story with her. I mean, I think that's a an act of both creativity as an artist, but also continuing to forge your own sensibility about what is a priority and how you're going about it and deepening your relationship. I'm in awe of that. I think that's a worthy life. Thank you. I appreciate that. Are your children political? Do you see your children as political? Do I? Did I mention that I had sons? That was another shocker to me, to have three boys in the house. Uh, our middle son, who is not in the spotlight and not in the news, is a lifelong middle school science and math teacher who married the special ed teacher who walked into the room <laughs> one day. So they have three kids and live on the West Coast, and they have a life of constantly thinking about morals and and morality and how to be an ethical person as a teacher. And Malik teaches kids who are in deep trouble, both in poverty and immigration issues. So that's one whole set of things. And then, of course, Chesa, who 
leapt into the public life after being a public defender for a number of years by trying to make a difference as a prosecutor. That was a horrifying thought to us, of course, and then he turned it into a piece of great dignity and, and ethical coherence. So, And then he was thrown out. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, what, what does that say about the hope for the future? It says we're in trouble. I think we're in deep trouble. The young people that I work with now just recently asked me, I was away with them in New York for a couple of days and asked me how I saw the world. And I really hesitated telling them because I think it's very, you know, that the growth of fascism globally is very intense as it is here, open, naked, not hidden. So, you know, we have a lot to do. So I don't think of it as political, we have talked, my partner, Tammy, and I have talked about the fact that we have four children who we have, four daughters. Uh-huh. You got all the daughters. What's we, have, we, have four, we have all the, but guess what all those daughters had? <laughs> yeah. So we have set, we have between us, we have seven grandchildren of which six are boys. <laughs> and it was this moment of what do we do with them? We figured it out pretty quickly and they're totally wonderful, but they are not activists. Right. And I do have angst. I have it for myself as well right now. The world is a mess. And part of me feels like, oh my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? I'm, I I'm tired. And I don't know if I want to do more civil disobedience and spend hours and days and nights in jails doing these actions that I don't quite know what they're going to accomplish anymore. But part of me feels like you got to get back out on the street. You've got to start. And I can't, or I'm, I'm struggling with that. And I struggle with my kids because part of me says the world is such a mess. We all have to be activists. I mean, there's a crisis going on here. Really, we should be stopping everything. To me, it's refusing to recognize what's going on. That's the problem. Nobody knows what to do. I'm going to ask one more question. What was um, most surprising to you in your experience in making the podcast? Either something you didn't know about your family or just something in the process, but something more pers you know, personal. Related, yeah. You know. There were a lot of surprises, but I, the one that jumps to mind, maybe because my mom is sitting here is, you know, I mean, you know, the way you know your mother, of course, you, you know, is, is as close as anybody in the world. And you, and I, and you feel like, I don't know, or at least I feel like I, I knew all the things I needed to know. But of course, there was never a reason before for me to kind of go back before I was born, you know? I mean, I knew the, I knew the, the basic outlines of her biography, but I don't think we'd ever really talked in detail about her life before I was born. So for me, one of the big surprises was, you know, learning about her as a high school student and then as a college student and the fact that she, you know, wanted to be in a sorority and wasn't allowed into a sorority because she was Jewish and what that did to her as a young person. I mean, those were things I didn't know, you know, or that, that when she first wanted to go to this, go South and register voters as part of the civil rights movement, that she had a boyfriend who told her not to, and that she listened, which was shocking because the person I knew would never have listened to a guy telling her what to do and what not to do. So like, you know, going back and just understanding who she was when she was younger, before she was a, my mother, was was probably the most surprising thing. Yeah, Bernadine, your dating life was pretty front and center in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. my God. 
Um, Watching the girls go through, the grandchildren go through this now is quite something. My kids have listened to probably the first three episodes, but I, sadly, they're in episode eight, but that's the one where I talk about my own drug use. So I'm not so excited to let them listen to that one just yet. Yeah. They'll They'll survive. They will survive survive. and they'll love you. Yeah. (laughs) Even, maybe more. Yeah. It was so awesome. Jamie, Karen, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. I hope we see each other in person soon. Thanks for listening to our conversation and tuning into Mother Country Radicals. Keep listening to hear the trailer for I Was Never There and find full episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Mother Country Radicals is an original podcast from Odyssey and Crooked Media. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, your host, writer, and executive producer. Our theme song is composed by Andy Clausen. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by Jamie and Karen Zellermeyer. It's produced by Ali Wolner, Lindsay Cradawill, Adesua Agbanile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. Their executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. The episode was produced by Liz Smith. In 1985, Marsha Mudd Ferber took the stage at the Underground Railroad, a bar she owned in Morgantown, West Virginia, to hold an election. Let's hear it from Ronald Reagan. And now, given the choice, would you vote for Harriet Tubman? All right. Harriet Tubman is president of 123 Pleasant Street, Morgantown, West Virginia. Marsha was a political radical and a hippie with a flair for the dramatic. The first time I saw Marsha, she was walking down High Street singing at the top of her lungs, let's get drunk and screw. Everywhere Marsha went, she built community. And she was all about redistribution of wealth. She'd share her panties. She raised the consciousness of West Virginia. And then, one day in April 1988, she disappeared. Marsha was last seen April 25th. All that was missing was her backpack. Her car was left at a parking meter. Belongings left in an apartment above the bar. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. I was raised communally by a bunch of hippies who had a lot of fun and did a lot of drugs. That's how I knew Marsha. Growing up, she was like a second mom to me. And I'm Karen Zellermeyer, Jamie's back-to-the-land hippie mom. Marsha was one of my best friends. We've decided to go back in time talking to people from her past and ours to try and figure out what happened. But the more we spoke to people, the more I realized there was a lot of shit going on that I knew nothing about. She was possibly murdered by some drug dealer types. The pot business funded everything. We were in South America, Marsha and I. We were in trouble. This podcast is about Marsha Ferber. But it's also about us. So I've said this about a million times, but what the fuck were you thinking? I wasn't, but would I do anything differently? I'm almost embarrassed to say probably not. This is I Was Never There. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.